We're back. During our third segment, we sometimes do obituaries, and one recurring theme obituary we're going to do for the year 2013 will be the obituary of our 35th President, John F. Kennedy. It was 50 years ago this coming November that JFK was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. This correspondent knows some of the leading researchers into that great murder mystery, and in the months to come, we'll be bringing them, we will be bringing them onto this program. For it is certainly one of the great murder mysteries of our time, or of any time. I think the case can be made that the repercussions of that event are very much still with us in the halls of government. My friend and colleague, Dr. Gary Aguilar, sent me a, uh, a report from a reporter who was there 50 years ago that I think I want to excerpt from briefly on today's show. Because it is curious to read the words of a professional written so long after the event, because, well, actually, I'll let you decide what you think of the report from Martin J. Stedman, the title of which is 50 Years from That Fateful Day in Dallas. You can probably find this on the web if you look, and I hope you will, dear listener, but let me just quote from a few paragraphs. Starting with its first, the murder of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas on November 22, 1963, has been the subject of fierce debate ever since. It didn't have to be that way. Long ago, when it happened, there should have been an exhaustive search for the truth about the assassination of the president. But there was not. As early as November 25th, on the day the president was buried, Federal Bureau of Investigation Director J. Edgar Hoover and newly sworn President Lyndon Johnson reached agreement to squelch widespread speculation that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted in concert with conspirators unknown. The Johnson-Hoover deal to stifle speculation about the assassination resulted in the appointment of a presidential commission to inquire into everything that happened on that weekend in Dallas. The Blue Ribbon Commission would be guided with a hastily prepared report from the FBI that said Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, and no connection could be established between Oswald and with the man who shot and killed him in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters two days later, Jack Ruby. That's right. The new president and the FBI director made up their minds immediately that Oswald killed Kennedy and Ruby killed Oswald, and case closed. Note Stedman, I spent 11 days in Dallas following the murder of President Kennedy, and I never wrote a word about my time there, mostly because I came home with no proof of anything conclusive about the unanswered questions, many of which are still unanswered. I came home only with a deep, unsettling feeling that I was leaving Dallas too soon. But as the years go by, I believe I have an obligation to write some things that I feel strongly about. Said Stedman, one more time, they closed the case on the day the president was buried. We know nothing about a top-level secret pact to close the case prematurely, and that surely was true in newsrooms all over America and beyond. That's about all I'm going to say today. I recommend you read this essay on the internet. I'm sure you can find it, dear listener. It'll be worth your while. The author is Martin J. Stedman, and the title is 50 Years from That Fateful Day in Dallas. Let's close the show on a little more upbeat note with Radio Parallax's most frequent guest, our sports correspondent, Mr. Sean Minton. Thanks, and I check your website regularly just to make sure that I'm still the cream of the crop, and it doesn't look like anybody's even close. No one is close. (laughs) We want to remind our listeners that you are a professional broadcaster having covered sports in the Pacific Northwest for really quite some time. Ten years or so, absolutely. And now 
do nothing down here but raise my child and watch him wake me up at night. It's very exciting. But, you know, you, you did do weather at one point, too, didn't you? I did weather. I had to learn the green screen and I had to re- learn my left was my right and my right was my left. And I used to do things like have people pour water on me when we were predicting rain <laughs> and have them throw. It was a very, very small market, but I got to pretty much uh, do whatever I wanted to do. Did you ever predict hail the size of canned hands? <laughs> no, but we used to do this thing where we'd have little kids color the weather, and then they'd send it in to us, and I used to be very harsh on the artistic skills of, like, three-year-olds, and eventually we just stopped doing that because the sponsor stopped sponsoring it. <laughs> Didn't like my comments, apparently. Oh, well. Well, Sean Franklin, you shouldn't have called that kindergarten a real SOB. Well, that and, <laughs> and the least artistic person I've seen since my cat peed all over my carpet. But other than, other than that, it was a it was a great run. Those things never happen, dear listener. But anyway, I, I got I've got this item I've been sitting on top of our our sports pile, waiting for your return. And without any without any hints as to what it is, I just want to I want to get your response to it. Okay, I'm going to quote from the piece, which is from the digest section of the Sacramento Bee. A report found California's workers' compensation system has awarded millions of dollars in benefits for job-related injuries to thousands of professional athletes, including many who played for out-of-state teams. The LA Times reported that sports leagues and their insurers are working to stop the practice, which has paid an estimated $747 million to about 4,500 players since the early 80s. Among them, NBA star Moses Malone, awarded 155000 And my personal favorite, Dallas Cowboy great Michael Irvin, who received $249,000. The piece notes that some of the athletes played only one game in California, but they take advantage of a provision in the state law that provides payments for the cumulative effect of injuries over years of playing. Your comments, sir. Well, I can back up and say, and I think we've talked about this before, is when players say the Dallas Cowboys come to play the 49ers, those players have to pay state taxes when they come into the state to play. So they're, I'm, I'm not arguing for this, but they are paying into the system when they come. If people have the idea in their heads that um, when a hockey team or a football team or a basketball team comes in to play the Kings or the, the Niners or the, the Warriors, it's, it's, a, it's a situation where whatever state they're in, for however long they're in there, they have to pay the equivalent of L&I, they have to pay the equivalent of sales. Whatever you and I are subject to, yeah. even for that short amount of time that they're here, they're subject to those taxes too, but at a much, a much grander scale because they're making so much more money than, than, than you and I would be making. So How would they say this stuck it to Michael Irvin? And he probably played the Niners twice in that interval. I'm sure his <laughs> argument, you know, if he took a big hit from Ronnie Lott or for, from somebody, I suppose he could. But you well, also mentioned. But you taxpayers? also you also mentioned it's the it, it can be a cumulative effect. So let's say that he's got a bum knee, and it just happens to give out on him on the the day that they're playing the Raiders or the Niners or the Chargers or something like that. I guess I could see that they could make the case. This was the day this actually happened. It's ridiculous. I mean, you've got millionaires and billionaires, and and you know they they, they probably really don't have a right to that money. But technically, I can understand why they would be given that because they're they're paying into the state fund when they're here playing. Well, I guess so. You know that that does remind me. You need not comment on this, but I understand that L. Ron Hubbard took checks from the VA for disabilities related to things he claimed to have cured in Dianetics 
in the 1950s up to the day he died in the 80s. I can. Does this have anything to do with spaceships or <laughs> taking? I. Oh, you're right. I won't comment on that. But again, just to get back to your original point, I I understand it. It also shows you, and this is again, this is probably a conversation for another day. How screwed up our state is that they would pay those benefits out instead of fighting them tooth and nail. Yeah, I mean, it would have been cheaper to hire a lawyer to just say, no, Moses, we're not giving you the dough. Exactly. Yeah, Moses is a big dude, though. I don't know if you ever <laughs> saw him, but he was pretty pretty badass. So I guess we're, we're, we're going to put up five foot four Erwin Shankman to challenge <laughs> what Moses had to say. And Sean, of course, we have to do this topic. The Olympics is apparently having second thoughts about wrestling mm-hmm. being a part of the, uh, the summer games. Correct. Um, your reaction to that? Let me ask you your reaction to that. Name one Olympic wrestler. <laughs> well, I don't. I, does he have to make it on a Wheaties box? <laughs> well, the problem the problem with the wrestling the the reason the people are upset is because it was one of the original sports when the Olympics. Yeah, came back out. in the original Olympics. Exactly. Exactly. Of course, back then the men weren't wearing clothes either, so it probably made things a little bit more interesting too. I think it's just a matter of revenue and uh, eyeballs watching and when wrestling comes on you know with the olympics with nbc having it you know it's on cnbc it's on bra whatever station they they put wrestling on nobody watches this i i I, this is explain why wrestling will go but we're going to retain synchronized swimming synchronized swimming they're (laughs) they're bringing in golf um they're getting they're getting rid of a couple of other sports as well i i mean Olympic golf. Right. Well, they're going to bring in professionals, Tiger okay. Woods and then the uh-huh. guys from overseas. So, I mean, it, it's going to be very much like the basketball teams and the soccer teams is they'll they'll the best the best golfers will go over there and make a mockery of it just like uh, just like all the other professional guys when they started coming. Well, here's one I I, I don't I, this reads like it's from the Onion, but apparently this is a <laughs> legitimate news story from the New York Times reprinted in the B. And here's the headline. Ice fishing embraces drug tests as it angles for spot in Olympics. Thank God, because when I was growing up in Minnesota and we went ice fishing, I, I looked at my dad a few times and I thought, I, you saw gold medal? What? Have you ever ice fished? No, I'm a California if guy. If you're not on drugs when you ice fish, you are nuts because it's cold, you're sitting on a bucket, You've, you've you've had to take a chipper to get through the ice and then you've had to drill through it. I would if you're not high when you're ice fishing, there is something wrong with you. Well, I got a quote from this. The ice fisherman spent a week on the frozen lake on the last day after emptying perch and bluegill from their buckets and scrubbing mm-hmm. bait from their hands. Yep. Several winners of the World Ice Fishing Championship were ushered into the rooms at the Plaza Hotel. There an official from the US Anti-Doping Agency ordered them to provide urine samples for a surprise test to detect steroids and growth hormones. At least they weren't checking for alcohol consumption. Well, I, yeah, I can guarantee I mean, you, I can, every uh, single one of them would have failed that okay, one. I can imagine Jack Daniels, sure. <laughs> Schlitz, sure. But why would anyone use growth hormone to catch bluegill? Again, have you ever tried to drill through six inches of ice? No. Anything, any PED that can help you drill through that? I've done that. I'm not kidding. And it is a miserable experience. <laughs> you give credence to the possibility. That- I absolutely give credence to the possibility. You guys bulking up on steroids yep. to, to get the auger out and drill through the exactly. ice. If you can get through there 30 seconds faster than your competition, then you've got that you've got that rod and reel in the, the water that much faster. Oh, I think this must be a sign Armageddon is near. <laughs> Well, be that as it may, let's let's back to the whole, uh, I have to laugh at a piece that somebody wrote saying, speculating on five Olympic sports that should have gone before wrestling. And they picked out modern pentathlon, ping pong, 
trampoline, taekwondo, judo, and race walking. I like to comment on race walking. This isn't a core sport. You understand how race walking works, correct? You have to have one foot on the ground at all times. Yeah, you have to have a heel. You yeah, know, yeah, and you look like a silly ass by the way you're you're ambulating. Have you ever walked through a mall on, say, a Monday morning and seen, like, the 70-year-olds race walking? I have to confess, I have not had that pleasure. I have had that pleasure. And let me tell you, if you take that off, those people are going to be outraged. <laughs> I, I, can, I can totally understand that. The other sports, I, you know, um, as a guy who enjoys, t- have you ever, I, I, I actually enjoy watching the ping pong during the Olympics. I mean, these guys are standing 20 feet behind the table and they're, I mean, the spin and the, the amazing things that they do with the ball. I know that sounds kind of goofy, but that, I mean, I play ping pong, so I know how difficult that is. I'd, I would not like to see that sport go. Taekwondo, if I can't spell it, I don't care if it's in the Olympics. So that's my thought on that. How about when they jump the horse over the, the barriers? That's, uh, equi- you mean the equestrian stuff or the yeah. steeplechase where the guys and the girls I, I jump really, over I'm, them? I'm kind of ignorant of the whole topic, but I know that, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think, Sean, there was some quote Rune Arledge said about one of those equestrian events, the Olympics, that like, unless there's a power failure and all other events are unavailable, do not air this. I Something along those lines. All right, digging through the pile here. Uh, did you have any opinion about the uh, the the Manny Pacquiao Bradley fight that apparently the the World Boxing Organization assigned five judges to rescore because it was apparently so it was so obvious that something Pacquiao. was up. Right, I, these guys have fought. Uh, I think this was either their third or fourth fight. Pacquiao had won uh, one, and then they split one, and and yeah, basically when that fight was over, everybody thought that Pacquiao had won. Yeah, and he lost. And so they went back and they looked at the they looked at the scoring and the scoring was completely out of whack. But this just in, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't think boxing is fixed, <laughs> it's time to sit down because I got some really bad news for you. You think the WWE is fixed? The problem with boxing these days, and we may have even talked about this before, is there's just no there's first of all you have to pay to see decent fights. Yeah, and you didn't when I grew up and you watched Muhammad Ali and Frazier and all these guys, you never had to pay. It was just on Saturday nights on ABC's Wide World of Sports, and there's nobody who's captured our imagination probably since probably since Tyson. I mean, everybody says that Merriweather and Pacquiao and these guys, you know, pound for pound, blah 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 blah, but. I mean, what we want to see, at least as Americans, we want to see guys go out and get knocked out. And when you're talking about featherweights and middleweights and bantamweights, I mean, they, they, the fights are great. They're, they're, they're very entertaining, but very rarely do people really get knocked out. And the one fight that everybody wanted to see, which is Merriweather and Pacquiao, will probably never take place. And if it does, both these guys are well past their prime, and, and it's not going to be as interesting as it would have been maybe three or four years ago. Well, why isn't it taking place? Well, a lot of it has to do with, with steroid testing. At one point, Merriweather oh. said that uh, you know he wanted testing and Pacquiao backed down, and then Pacquiao agreed to it, and then Merriweather backed down. Merriweather spent some time in jail for smacking his wife around or his girlfriend around, and um, you know we're talking about a fifty or sixty million dollar payout, and they just can't. They're the management of each side. Just they just can't agree to to, to what. So they'll probably be in their forties by the time they get it figured out, and and nobody will care at that point. Dang. Again, give me the name of uh, of one one fighter that you can think of right now in any weight division, besides ones we just mentioned. Well, uh, what's those two Russian dudes? The Kirilenko brothers. Yeah, I don't know their name, but I did hear that they were kind of interesting characters. Vladimir and what other what other Russian name you can think of? But <laughs> yeah, I mean they're heavyweights and they won't fight each other. Yeah, that would be an interesting fight, especially in Russia. But. Boxing is, uh, you know, with the UFC and some of these other things coming along, and boxing is well past its prime. Hmm. 
Any comments on the passing of the, the late, great Burt Sugar, who always seemed to have some boxing uh, story up his sleeve when he was on TV? I used to watch uh, ESPN Classic all the time, and yeah. they'd, they'd have the, this round table with these guys, and he would always have his scar in his mouth and his, his hat on. He, yeah, I mean, when it came, he was one of the guys who could really, and it's really hard to do, it's really hard to write about boxing. Just like it's probably hard to write about tennis, some of these things that that we're not accustomed to in, in terms of action. I mean, how do you describe? He throws a right. He throws a jab, 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 right, jab, jab. <laughs> but he was one of the few guys that actually had a real talent for writing about it, and he's one of the guys who really propelled the sport and made superstars out of guys like Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali and some of these guys that came along. So yeah, that's 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 kind of a bummer. And there there aren't guys, you know, he's a character. Yeah, and writers these days. Because of the internet, I mean, guys like that are just hard to find these days because everybody can write. Everybody has access to everybody else's work. When he did it, there were maybe four or five great boxing writers. And now, you know, you can go to ESPN, you can go to Boxing World, you can go to all kinds of different websites and, and, and read about boxing. But he was really kind of a one of a kind guy. Well, I gather we shall not see his like again anytime soon. Sean, we are out of time. Uh, we, we, I planned this very badly. No Lance Armstrong, Manti Teo, come on! Okay, then let's have you come back real soon in the next couple weeks, and we'll talk about all that good stuff. Excellent, excellent. That about does it. Our thanks to Sean Minton. He'll be back. And to producer Edward McMillan, who I'm happy to report is off the bottle again. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. And when I say that, I don't mean he's still on the bottle. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Tune in again next week at the same time. We hope to bring you our aviation correspondent, Mr. Vladimir Zaravika. I'm sure that will be interesting. We'll see you then.